0: Just think, Max. Because of us, everyone tomorrow morning will jump out of bed and jump into the shower and grab a quick breakfast and jump into their cars and get on the freeway and rush to work, just like they do
1: every day in the year.
0: Do you think we did the right thing, 99? UNFTI! Jeff Bezos and what, are your, what is your claim to fame? <laughs> I'm the founder of Amazon.com. Where did you get an idea for Amazon.com? Well three years ago I was in New York City working for a quantitative hedge fund when I came across the startling statistic that web usage was growing at 2300 percent a year so I decided I would try and find a business plan that made sense in the context of that growth And I picked books as the first best product to sell online, which is making a list of like 20 different products that you might be able to sell. And Books were great as the first best because books are incredibly unusual in one respect, and that is that there are more items in the book category than there are items in any other category by far. Music is number two. There are about 200,000 active music CDs at any given time. But in the book space, there are more than three million different books worldwide active and in print at any given time across all languages more than one and a half million in English alone. So when you have that many items, you can literally build a store online that couldn't exist any other way. And that's important right now because the web is still an infant technology. Basically right now, if you can do things using a more traditional method, you probably should do them using the more traditional method. This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world be. Another basic white guy who he started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. All through the podcast. Unfug-
1: Fucking the Republic is sponsored by Insane Level members W. Jeremy D., Tam Jam, Sam C., Ryan F., Rob Nasby, Prof. G., Nick G., and Cassie LMM, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second, Nathan E., Michelle H., and Matthew.
2: How clever it would be to make pithy analogies about Amazon the Rainforest and Amazon the Company. Here's how I would start the episode, were I so inclined.
1: Put up a parking lot with a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They paint paradise, put up a parking lot. Ooh.
2: No matter how many songs, children's books, or animated movies about slovenly indulgent humanoids sipping giant colas, waiting for packages to arrive in their hoarder homes, the sad truth is, we're turning into putty, courtesy of a smiley face on cardboard boxes. You may think you understand this company. Perhaps you do. I thought I had a fairly decent grasp of it before putting this together but it wasn't until I assembled the pieces for this show that I only started to discern the magnitude of Amazon's influence over us. You would have to be the Unabomber to escape the clutches of this company. Actually, I'm not even sure that it's fair to call it a company anymore. As we move through the episode, one thing to keep in mind is Amazon is just getting warmed up. It will more than likely surpass Walmart as the world's number one company in terms of revenue, if not this year, then next. There's literally nothing standing in its way. Regulators, consumers, competitors, nothing, and no one will slow them down. The best we can hope for is to contain it, but that relies on one thing, whether we want to or not. There are more profitable companies, energy companies in China, Apple, Microsoft, Google, JP Morgan Chase, these companies all boast stronger profit margins, but that too won't last forever. It's difficult to imagine a scenario over the next five to ten years where Amazon doesn't become the single largest, most profitable, and influential company on planet Earth.
0: You're a liar and a scoundrel.
2: No, I'm telling the truth. So why do this episode? Just another show to prove how fucked we are? Another example of a company that embodies the full perversion of the capitalist neoliberal economic model? Well, partly... I do feel as though it's important for us to prove our ongoing thesis by specifically pointing to an obvious symptom of this disease, but I also think it's important to fully comprehend the scope and the depth of Amazon's influence because I'm not entirely sure that it's widely understood. But believe me, I've also heard the call that we need to do more than just explain things wherever possible and offer solutions, should practical solutions even exist. And on this, I do think there's a little daylight. Although I want to temper any potential enthusiasm here. Amazon has been around for nearly 28 years at this point. It's not even an overnight sensation. There's no one policy measure, piece of legislation, social action, or even a competitor on the horizon that is going to suddenly unwind the juggernaut that is Amazon. So framing is important, as it always is. It's one thing to be offended by the sheer size of Amazon. To view its founder as an evil billionaire who evades taxes, gives back paltry sums to charity, and indulges fantasies of space travel in phallic rockets. We can detest the abusive working conditions at their plants, decry their anti competitive and monopolistic practices, all of it. But we should also be asking why? What's the end game? Who's really getting fucked? How much is the changing nature of business and innovation? Versus how much is manipulation, greed, and harm? Are we mad because there's something really, really foul at play here? Or just because they're winning? (laughs) Duh. Winning. So let's do it. Let's unfuck Amazon together for the next little while and try to figure out what's at stake. Because what really set me on my heels after putting this together is that Amazon isn't ordinary. You know, people talk about Elon Musk. Oh, he's a genius, smartest man on the planet. Let Elon run everything. Elon Musk is a fucking turd compared to Jeff Bezos, and I mean it. Bezos may have handed over the day-to-day operations and moved into the executive chair capacity, but make no mistake, he's in charge, and he's in charge of way more than you might think.
1: UNFTR is also sponsored by Insane Level members Cringy, Jennifer S., G. Wookiee of Ohio, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S., Cindy S., Asshole, Awesome A., Asoke, and welcoming our new Insane Level member, GOAT.
2: Chapter 1 Seattle Not So Supersonic There are a bunch of clips from articles and news reports and a PBS documentary in today's episode. And I pulled a lot of great stuff from a book titled Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America by Alec McGillis. A few chapters in the book originally appeared in The New Yorker, but McGillis finished compiling the book for release in 2021. Amazon is, as you can imagine, a pretty popular subject, so there were endless options for book love. But I really fell in love with this one because McGillis skillfully weaves a very human narrative in describing one of the most inhumane companies ever conceived. Each chapter begins with a personal narrative and a human face that really paints a picture of the real American Amazon. We'll update some of the financial data since the book was mostly compiled pre-pandemic, but the later chapters do touch somewhat on the explosion of Amazon's footprint and revenue during COVID. If McGillis sounds familiar, it's because he's also the author of The Cynic, The Political Education of Mitch McConnell. I haven't read that one, and I'm not sure it was actually all that popular, but given his old-school approach, I am all over it. Of course, I'll be ordering it from bookshop.org, and not you-know-where. Anyway, I liked his approach because there are so many characters to talk about when examining Amazon's journey to one of the most powerful companies in history. There's the story of Seattle a central character in the rise of Amazon. The more than 1.1 million people in the United States that work directly for Amazon and 1.6 million globally. The cities and states across the country that bend over backwards to their own detriment to attract Amazon's attention. Then there's society and culture and what the online retail phenomenon has done to our relationships with goods and services and with one another. And of course, there's the planet the massive impact that our obsession with consumer goods and expediency is having on our home planet. There's little wonder why Bezos is looking to get the fuck out of here at some point.
0: To infinity
1: and
2: beyond! So let's start with one of the central characters that most of us don't see, and that's the city Amazon calls home.
1: Seattle is experiencing a human crisis right now. I think a crisis of what happens when people who have have more and more and more and it makes people who don't have a lot have less and less and none.
2: A young Jeff Bezos had done his turn on Wall Street and set out with $100,000 from his parents and an idea to start an online bookstore. That part of the origin story is pretty well documented. His adopted city was Seattle, near corporate giant Microsoft, ostensibly because it placed him near some top-notch developer talent on the West Coast. Partially true. Another explanation is that one of his early investors was Nick Hanauer, an entrepreneur from Seattle. Pitchfuckers will recognize Nick's name as the host of Pitchfork Economics and the founder of Civic Ventures. We'll talk more about Nick later. McGillis explains that the real reason for selecting Seattle over California, which was already teeming with coding talent, was because, quote, if Bezos set up his company in California, he would have to assess sales tax on all of his customers in the biggest state in the country, end quote. So this first decision remains crucial to Amazon's success and identity. Because sales tax is a state issue and the laws weren't clear on how to collect sales tax on the internet, all products technically originated in Washington and were therefore exclusive of sales tax no matter where the customer was based. It's the first example of tax avoidance that would define Amazon's posture towards taxation generally and its relationship with government entities. For the first few years, Amazon grew steadily. It made it through the dot-com bubble and became an outlier in its ability to attract both money and talent. From day one, though it was established as an online bookseller, Amazon's founder made it clear that he intended to sell everything under the sun, the ultimate one-stop shopping experience for consumers around the globe. But first, he had to dominate the publishing space with ferocious intensity. Bezos set out to do just that. To say he succeeded would be a colossal understatement. Amazon took over a large market share of the publishing industry very, very fast. They were very quickly in a position to demand concessions. You know, I think that was a moment where publishers started to realize, oh, wait a minute, Like we, they're our partner, but they now have the beginnings of a boot on our windpipe. Amazon's success in taking over the publishing industry was swift and complete. Having already gone public just three years after its founding, it quickly became a Wall Street darling and had access to almost unlimited capital. With this unending supply of cash, Bezos would invest heavily into a technology infrastructure unrivaled in history. Technically, the company turned a profit in 2001, but that had more to do with a one-time quarterly settlement of debt in euros. But by the early 2000s, it did begin turning out a bottom line, enough to satisfy investors as top line revenue continued to creep. Expanding its product line meant hiring and building. The bigger the company got, the more human and physical resources it required to feed the machine. By the 2010s, Amazon truly entered the flywheel phase of its growth, and revenue and profits began to compound. Shit
0: just got real.
2: By this time, Amazon was beginning to dominate the Seattle landscape. The greater the competition for talent, the higher the wages. The higher the wages, the tighter the housing market and higher the prices. From 2010 to 2020, Seattle's population grew by a staggering 21%, and with it, so did its troubles. But when Seattle's public officials looked to its number one tenant for support, it was pretty much... As McGillis writes, quote, for years, Amazon had been strikingly unengaged in politics and civic affairs in Seattle, an absence that grew all the stranger the more it expanded. This was a reflection of the libertarian politics of its founder. Government was not only a hindrance, it was irrelevant. Mike McGinn, the mayor from 2010 to 2013, had not met Bezos once while leading the city, end quote. The population boom, Rising costs and the city's inability to craft a comprehensive plan that involved corporate stakeholders turned into a full-blown homelessness crisis. By the end of the decade, Seattle would earn the dubious ranking of the third-highest homeless population in the country. In a city bursting with more than 4 million residents, most of whom already barely scraping by, fully 11,000 fell through the cracks. The city council, having been ignored by its most notable tenant for more than a decade, voted to approve what was dubbed a, quote, head tax on the number of employees a company employed within a city. The funds would be used to support programs and housing for the most at-risk population in Seattle. Finally, after years of silence, the giant awoke from its slumber. Do I have everybody's attention now? McGillis expertly reviews how Amazon was able to lobby local council members and generate fear among residents that it would consider scaling back expansion plans in Seattle due to a proposal that would tax corporations on the number of employees in the city in order to fund programs and combat the growing issue of homelessness. At the time of the proposal in 2018, Seattle had the unenviable distinction of the third highest homeless population in the country, as we said. Median home prices had risen to a shocking $800,000, $800,000, and Amazon's revenue, at the same time, hit a new high of $230 billion. It also reported that its profits exceeded $1 billion for the second consecutive quarter. It was the first for the company. All in, the proposed tax, which was spread among all businesses, would net about $75 million per year, and Amazon threw everything against the wall to help kill the measure and succeeded first by getting the council to reduce the tax. After the proposal was scaled back, it was estimated that Amazon's share of the new tax would cost them $12 million a year to help fight homelessness in the city it called home. Yeah, the $230 billion corporation with a multi-billion dollar profit margin would have to pay somewhere in the neighborhood of $12 million a year. Amazon was pissed, but the measure passed until it didn't. Only two days after the measure passed, Amazon backchanneled a referendum to repeal it, spending more than $500,000 in just one month with conservative lobbying firms to generate a groundswell of support against the tax. And then, just 60 days after it passed the council, the same members voted to repeal it the corporate tax to help combat homelessness in Seattle was officially dead. Chapter 2. Customer-Centric.
0: But the number one thing that has made us successful by far is obsessive, compulsive focus on the customer, as opposed to obsession over the competitor.
2: Anyone who's researched Amazon or heard Bezos speak will be familiar with this. This is everything. Building solutions for the customer almost to the exclusion of all else is what Bezos and his executive team have preached since the beginning. It's a winning strategy, or at least it has been for Amazon. The dark side of his particular brand of obsessiveness is an antipathy toward the workforce. Not the executives and the developers. They're sacrosanct in tech. But those bottom-feeding trolls that do the work they haven't figured out how to automate. Now, not every success story is built this way, by the way. Take, for example, my personal favorite mogul, Danny Meyer. Years ago, I lived in Manhattan, right across the street from where the very first Shake Shack would open up. I moved out literally months before this happened and before Meyer completely transformed Madison Square Park by involving local suppliers, giving back to the community surrounding his restaurants through beautification programs and other initiatives. It was my loss, but living down the block from his famed Union Square Cafe put him on my mental radar early. So when his seminal business book, Setting the Table, came out, I purchased dozens of copies and gave them out to my staff because Danny Meyer saw the world differently. In a business known for the customer is always right, Meyer flipped the script. Here's a passage from the book that brilliantly explains his philosophy. Quote, the interest of our own employees must be placed directly ahead of those of our guests because the only way we can consistently earn raves, win repeat business, and develop bonds of loyalty with our guests is first to ensure that our own team members feel jazzed about coming to work. I place the interest of our investors fifth, behind guests, community, and suppliers, but not because I don't want to earn a lot of money. On the contrary, I staunchly believe that standing conventional business priorities on their head ultimately leads to even greater, more enduring financial success. End quote. There's a flip side to that coin. Needless to say, Jeff Bezos has a different worldview. Now, I'm not suggesting there's a one-size-fits-all approach to business and hospitality is not online commerce. And valuing the customer is important in business. But valuing one's employees isn't mutually exclusive. Yet Bezos has operated with a palpable disdain for the million-plus workers that exist outside of Amazon's ivory tower. Much of the innovation they've brought to bear has been in an effort to supplant the worker, automate, and improve efficiency. As the New York Times reported in a special investigation last year, quote, even before the pandemic, previously unreported data shows Amazon lost about 3% of its hourly associates each week, meaning the turnover among its workforce was roughly 150% a year. That rate, almost double that of the retail and logistics industries, has made some executives worry about running out of workers across America, end quote. This isn't normal. That's how fucking bad the conditions are, but warehouse workers are expendable. And in Amazon's estimation, human labor is merely a temporary bridge solution to full automation, or as close as they can get. As McGillis notes, quote, as seamless as it all looked, the company was still searching for ways to eliminate slack. For one thing, it had secured two patents for a wristband that could track workers every move and even alert them via a vibration if it detected that they were going off task. Part man, Part machine. Underneath, it's a hyperalloy combat chassis, microprocessor-controlled. He continues, explaining the company put in place, quote, an automated system to track performance, productivity, time off task, and the system would flag you for termination if you lagged. That is, you could be fired by an algorithm, end quote. By the mid-to-late 2010s, word of discontent among Amazon employees was beginning to permeate the media landscape.
1: Labour militancy is continuing now with uh, several Amazon warehouses uh, experiencing a work stoppage after workers walked off the job. Amazon workers walked out the door to protest conditions at the warehouse in Romulus. They say they are scared for their own health. First,
0: their tax affairs came under scrutiny. Now it's
2: Amazon's working conditions. Hundreds of employees on zero-hours contracts are subjected to a regime described as horrendous and exhausting. And then two years ago, this story emerged.
0: 814, and this story getting a whole lot of attention. Amazon under fire this morning for terminating an employee who led a walkout on Monday at its Staten Island facility.
2: Both the state attorney general and the mayor's office demanding now an investigation into this firing. So this morning, we are joined by the worker at their center of it all, Christian Smalls, to explain what exactly happened here. Chris, good morning. Thanks for joining uh, us. Uh uh. We'll get to him later. In 2018, The Intercept co-authored a report with the new food economy based upon data they obtained that showed Amazon's employees were one of the top recipients of SNAP benefits, formerly known as food stamps. This report came out around the same time the government announced a pilot program where benefit holders could redeem coupons on Amazon. Okay, so the company built on disdain for the government, was operating warehouses subsidized by state governments, and filled with employees that required supplemental food benefits to survive and who could now redeem them on Amazon. And
1: isn't it ironic, Don't
2: think? McGillis calls Amazon's philosophy zero-sum sorting. It's the crux of his expose about Amazon's view, the world at your doorstep at any cost. But now the company employs more than a million people in the United States. That's about one out of every 160 people working if you count just direct employees. So when you factor in the supporting economy, the Amazon ecosystem gets exponentially larger. And because their business relies on pounding margins into the ground and making everything cheap and accessible, they're extracting the toll in more places than just their suppliers. More for them, less for you, all to make goods cheaper and cheaper. And the more the customer falls behind, the more the government is required to step in and fill the gaps. Maybe more debt. Another job. Maybe you can even sign on to deliver packages at night so you can afford to order more packages during the day.
0: Coffee bread.
2: Hey 99. You know what's so great about our unfucking blends of coffee from UNFTR.com/slash shop?
1: That they're available exclusively through our online store that we built ourselves and not on Amazon?
2: Uh, oh, that, that's right. Also, that it- Comes it-
1: directly from the native roasters on the Puspachuk Reservation to our non-Amazon-affiliated warehouse that's locally owned and operated?
2: Precisely. M- but also that- We ship directly through the U.S. Postal Service out of respect for the agency and to support the union carriers in snow, sleet, and rain? Oh. Hey, Manny. Uh, Yeah, but it also...
1: Supports indigenous fair trade growers in South and Central America?
2: Provides us with the financial support to grow the podcast?
1: While simultaneously supporting indigenous economic development?
2: I love you guys.
1: We love you too, Max.
2: Alright, now let's just get back to the fucking program. When you boil it all down, what does a man really need? Just a smoke and a cup of coffee. Chapter 3. Gaming the System. The war of words between Jeff
1: Bezos and the White House escalated on Monday with the two sparring over the Biden administration's handling of inflation and its plans to tax the rich. The latest round began when the Amazon CEO accused President Biden in a Friday tweet of misleading the public when Biden said that raising corporate taxes would help bring down inflation.
2: So Bezos is currently feuding with Biden. He feuded with Trump clapped back at criticisms from Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, ignored the politicians that ran his home city of Seattle, fought taxation on their goods, hid profits for years by funneling them through Luxembourg. Bezos has done everything in his power to reflect the libertarian image of the self-made man behind the nearly half-a-trillion-dollar company that employs a million-plus people. He doesn't need anyone's help. This is the same company, as McGillis points out, that, quote, In 2017 alone, Amazon would collect well over a hundred million in subsidies to open fulfillment centers around the country for a total of more than one billion over the previous decade. The company had a whole department tasked with securing subsidies. It called this its Office of Economic Development. By the late 2010s, Amazon had become a political powerhouse, bending states and the federal government to its will every step of the way. Honestly, It's a masterclass. It might not seem like a big deal to own a newspaper these days, but there are still a handful of papers that matter. Papers of record. The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Financial Times,
1: Willamette Week,
2: certainly Willamette, and The Washington Post. Again, McGillis. Quote, in 2013, the Graham family, overwhelmed by upheaval in the news business, was looking to offload the Washington Post, which had been in its hands for 80 years. Don Graham met with Bezos to discuss the matter at the annual Sun Valley, Idaho conference held by investment bank Allen & Co. Four weeks later, they announced the sale of the paper for $250 million, which at the time was less than 1% of Bezos's estimated net worth. In 2015, Amazon hired former White House press secretary Jay Carney. By the end of the 2010s, it maintained the largest lobbying presence in Washington, D.C. among its tech peers, with almost 30 full-time lobbyists in one office alone and more than 100 contractors spread out across D.C. Quote, it lobbied on the sales tax, which it still didn't assess on most of the third-party sales that now made up more than a half of its U.S. retail business. It lobbied against regulations for drones, which it hoped to use to deliver packages. It lobbied to maintain the discounted delivery rates it enjoyed with the Postal Service. It lobbied on government procurement, seeking to become the one-stop shop for all federal purchasing. It lobbied against any effort to bring antitrust scrutiny to the company." End quote. Even more devious, Amazon tapped a former Obama administration official named Ann Rung to establish an online procurement department within the company. Her first target was a school district in Northern Virginia, answering what might seem like a very simple Request for Proposal, or RFP, to purchase school supplies. But this district was far from ordinary. The district was the lead bidder in a cooperative purchasing agreement for a network of, quote, 55,000 school districts, police departments, and other local government entities operated by a for-profit company called U.S. Communities, writes McGillis. Rung was successful because she worked back channels to have this and many subsequent RFPs designed specifically to include language for a portal, for a marketplace. Now, this is important. It was less about the bulk cost of procuring goods and more about how they would be purchased. Amazon operated ostensibly the only full-scale platform or true marketplace, thereby making each RFP effectively sole-sourced. Rung's plot worked and the little school district RFP resulted in a contract worth $5.5 billion. Impressive. Miss Rung, is that all? No, I'm just getting warmed up. As The Guardian reported, Rung would shift her sights to a bigger target, the federal government itself. Quote, emails seen by The Guardian show that the Amazon executive, Ann Rung, communicated with a top official at the General Services Administration, the GSA about the approach the government would take to create a new portal, even before the legislation that created it, known to its critics as the Amazon Amendment, was signed into law." So this amendment was useful in the same manner in that Amazon's platform would be utilized as a central clearinghouse of sorts for purchasing. That way, Amazon didn't even need to own the goods that were sold. Every transaction, regardless of who the seller was, would benefit Amazon's bottom line. McGillis explains the process succinctly, Quote, Amazon took a roughly 15% cut from any sales local suppliers made on the marketplace. With this strategy explained a report by the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, a research and advocacy organization that defends communities from corporate control, Amazon is following an approach that is already used with consumer goods, positioning itself to be not just the retailer selling goods to public agencies, but the platform through which its competitors have to go to reach their buyers. This enabled Amazon, through the fees that it charges sellers, to collect a private tax on their sales, end quote. Remember when we talked about the Enron loophole that allowed companies like Enron to engage in speculative behavior in the energy markets? How it was snuck into a larger bill to avoid scrutiny? It's the same thing here. The so-called Amazon Amendment was slipped into the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, and allowed the DOD, among others, to make purchases of up to $50 billion in the Amazon marketplace.
0: Pretty sneaky, sis.
2: The government playing footsie with big business is hardly novel, but the local relationship is disturbing on a more visceral level, especially when they give themselves over and pay fealty to Amazon's corporate power through tax breaks and subsidies. One anecdote in fulfillment is how an EMS team wasn't bothered by the regular calls to assist workers in distress at an Amazon packing facility. That was their job. What bothered them is that they knew they were doing it for free. Local municipalities don't even realize the double dip damage that they're doing to their own communities by accepting these warehouses and fulfillment centers. By giving them subsidies and incentives, they're robbing the local coffers right off the bat So when these centers come into town, Amazon can immediately jump in to offer prime service to the community. This in turn chips away at the local community businesses and storefronts that can't compete with the service and they go out of business, thereby further depriving the community of badly needed property and sales tax income. And so it goes. More to come, unfuckers, and we'll tease some out in post-show musings, but for all practical purposes, here endeth part one of Amazon, The Unfulfillment Company.
0: It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings.
2: Well, now, welcome to Post-Show Musings. Still within range to wish everyone a happy and hearty Fuck Milton Friedman Day. I hope everybody took advantage of their 25% flash discount on our coffee store, unftr.com slash shop, lasting through the weekend. And I hope everybody enjoyed Fuck Milton Friedman Day. It's a global holiday, you know. So speaking about this episode, the Amazon story is big. And part of what I love about this show, and even though I started with a general framework, this story took so many twists and turns along the way. Too much to tackle all at once. But it makes sense. Nearly a half a trillion in revenue. Probably a hundred percent brand awareness. It's actually hard not to be wholly impressed by what this thing has become. But like most things that get this big, the road to get there is littered with bodies. So not all change is bad, mind you, and some is inevitable, but we're way past the inevitability of what Amazon has become and very deep into careful what you wish for territory. So covering some of the roots of the company, its treatment of its hometown, how it gained certain systems and harnessed levers of power is fundamental and important. So in part two, we're going to build on that and be a little more specific as we dig into what does a half a trillion on its way to a trillion dollar company really look like? So We'll dig into their financials a little bit, review some crucial and surprising acquisitions along the way, and we'll dig into all the different ways that the company earns money. The hope is to demonstrate just how ubiquitous this company is, even in places that you don't think about every day. That being said, it's more than just a passing statement that Amazon enjoys nearly 100% brand recognition. I mean, that's Coca-Cola shit. I mean, Amazon's only been at it for a fraction of the time of some of these other companies that are this widely known. And I know it sounds like a lot, but we are going to end on a hopeful note. But be forewarned, this train, this Amazon train, is fucking unstoppable. The best that we can hope for, in my humble estimation, is to put up a few guardrails that protect the people along the way. Without these measures, Amazon will move into ungovernable, quasi state control territory, and that is not hyperbole. And as promised... We'll conclude with a piece of meaningful legislation that correlates to the topic at hand. So that's what's on tap for next week on Fuckers. But, question for you, 99. Before we dig into the second part of the episode, just generally, what does Amazon kind of evoke in you as a brand? And has your impression of it changed over the years?
1: It definitely has. I used to love Amazon. I remember in high school, I just got whatever I wanted you know I just and it was great and this was pre-prime pre two-day shipping but it had everything you wanted and then when I got older and realized all the implications just I mean across the board I made a concerted effort and I shut down my account and I think no kidding yeah I think it's been are you serious mm-hmm. wow it's been Probably, I think I did it pre-COVID, so maybe two wow, and a half, three I'm years. Yeah, I try not to shop at Amazon sellers, so I try not to go to Whole Foods if I can avoid it. That's Zappos, that I know. Oh, isn't Goodreads owned by Amazon? That one bummed me out. Audible is. I think Goodreads is too.
2: Goodreads, seriously? Let me double check. That's upsetting.
1: Who owns Goodreads? amazon since 2013 good lord yeah so i like had a goodreads account and i was like fuck this and i mean i didn't really use it much i used it more as a virtual bookshelf to keep track of what i had in my own library but i was like i i just that one's small and maybe petty but i just don't want them having any of my time any of my brain space and i really don't like what it's done to consumers where if a you know a small business or just a medium-sized business. Things don't ship in two days because a person has to fill the box, not a basically a slave. I mean, they treat their workers like slave, like slaves. It's it's awful. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't fault anyone for having to work there. We've talked about in the past. Like, if that's all that's around you, what Absolutely. are you gonna do?
2: Absolutely. Uh, they have a lot of Twitter bots that say that they really enjoy working there. And it's oh a yeah, and people,
1: you know, they don't have to piss in the bottles <laughs> and everything. But yeah, I remember seeing a small makeup company I follow. They were like, it's been four days, why hasn't my order shipped? And they were like, hey, you know, we're we we we're doing our best here, but like four days? Yeah. That's not crazy. Also, if you order something on a on a Saturday, why not ship till Tuesday? Because people have to get back into the office and the warehouse, like, why should a small business warehouse have to work Saturday and Sunday? They're not Amazon for a reason, so.
2: But you've gone a lot further than most people, I mean, I would say, even people that have, like myself, that see them in sort of a hostile light, still kind of fuck with them, right? Because it's just, it's just there, it's available, and the convenience factor is huge. And uh, the truck's on my street anyway, and I can't tell you how many times I've come home, and there's like three packages there that I didn't order, but I'm just like, well, all right, well, this is what we're doing right now. We're busy people, it's a tremendous convenience. And for me, putting this together, different than a consumer that is so, I guess, held hostage by that company. Mm -hmm. The bias that I had to get over in putting this together is the absolute appreciation I have for the mechanisms of this company. What they do to facilitate this, and I know what they do to take advantage of the people, particularly in the warehouses and the last mile, that's really the part that they haven't obviously been able to figure out how to dehuman this company as they dehumanize the entire process. But it is a magnificent company. It is a study. That's why there's already two Harvard case studies on it and always evolving. What they've been able to do and accomplish is astounding. And to think that there are even competitors in China that are more integrated than an Amazon, for example, is kind of mind bending. Because part of what we're going to do in part two is demonstrate how Even with the most deliberate intentions to avoid Amazon, you're not. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to say like, what you're doing is all for naught. You are doing what you can as a consumer to deliberately support other avenues for companies and small businesses to make money. And that is something that it's incumbent upon all of us to do that. What we're going to demonstrate though, is that they have so wholly infected other areas of the tech space and even non-tech space that you cannot avoid them at this point. So whether you even know that you're fucking with this company or not, you're fucking with this company. Like you you cannot get around it if you are a person in the world today. Like I said, you'd have to be Ted Kaczynski living out the fucking mountains to really kind of avoid this company and their tentacles. It's cabin
1: wasn't even that remote. It wasn't? No, he likes to paint it. It was like he had neighbors. I mean, it was, like, rural, but he had neighbors.
2: Ah, oh, it kind of, like, bums me out.
1: Well, don't hero worship the Unabom. Oh, no, no,
2: no, no. I'm not, I'm not. Okay. You know, I just, I don't like losing, you know, perspective on, on Sorry. like, stories ethos, like that.
1: Sorry, I want to ruin the mythos, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was rural. It wasn't, like, our homes,
2: but. But, like, he could borrow, like, sugar from somebody?
1: He'd probably have to walk a little bit, but yeah. Apparently, he got in a fight with, with one of his neighbors about a whole, like, they were, like, a logging company was a whole thing. Hmm. Um <laughs> Are we going to get into the year the Amazon retail storefronts <laughs> in part 2?
2: That's going to gonna me, be That's
1: very it's very bizarre.
2: It's very bizarre. It's not an insignificant part of their revenue picture these days.
1: They have grocery stores now too, right? Now mm-hmm. They used to have bookstores, now they have grocery stores. And they're the ones where you can just walk out, right?
2: Yeah, those are those are still tests in certain areas. Yeah, and they've been able to, you know, take over with pilot programs on college campuses. They've got delivery services and yeah. you know, touchless services and things like that. That's the forward consumer-facing aspect of Amazon that contributes to their brand identity that is ubiquitous, right? Mm-hmm. It's the other things that they've done behind the scenes that I also find fascinating, some of which has allowed them the technology to be able to get there. But when you start looking at the other avenues that they're pursuing, that don't seem to make a lot of sense. They make a lot of sense when you put the whole thing together in terms of being uncatchable and unstoppable in so many different ways from a policy perspective, from a legislation, from an antitrust perspective, it's really complicated.
1: It also doesn't hurt that Bezos isn't Zuckerberg. He's way more personable and feels more like a human being at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah,
2: even though he looks, I think somebody made the point, he went from to this like bizarre, muscular Lex Luthor type villain from that's, the...
1: Okay, all right. Oh, the what, guy's
2: jacked. He's I just mean, working out constantly, fine. wearing tight he's shirts. He's the time he's,
1: for that. But he did Lex the whole Luther? shaved
2: head thing and he's I mean, fucking he balding.
1: evil.
2: <laughs> yeah, but he's shiny balding. Like it's manicured. It's tight. He's well, fucking Lex Luthor okay. at this point, you know?
1: Well, I'm just saying he...
2: Zuckerberg's just a bot.
1: Yeah, but like when you see Zuckerberg testifying, he Mm -hmm. looks and talks and acts like a robot for some reason. He didn't used to. Yeah. He does now, but Bezos still acts like a human. Yeah. He's just sick. He's a sick fuck.
2: He's not as captivating to certain people as like a a Musk figure because he's not willing to engage.
1: Yeah, he's not as unhinged.
2: He's not unhinged. He's not... So the hero worship isn't there necessarily among the population as it is for Elon Musk but the hero worship within the business community and with the political class is immense I mean he just donated I think it was a hundred million dollars
1: that's like one dollar for him right
2: right but he did it <laughs> to you. while he's fighting with Biden he donated a hundred million dollars to, to Obama and his presidential library just to show you like how interwoven he is into the Upper echelons of the political class. I mean, every move this man has made is deliberate. I don't think it is an exaggeration to truly call him a genius of sorts. Whereas I mean, we've talked about it before, and I think a lot of people are beginning to understand that Elon Musk is a fraud, not a stupid man. I never called him that, but he's he's not a genius and he's a fraud and he's a he's a marketing genius in the way that Trump is a genius, but also really stupid. You know?
1: Yeah. Words like genius and great and awesome, they have those double meanings where you can be a great person, but not great.
2: <laughs> but Bezos is operating on a whole other level. And I, I remember, I, I mean, I had, a, I won't call it hero worship, but huge admiration for him. Here we go digging into the past again. But when I got out of college and moved to New York City, two buddies of mine, uh, one from school and one from, uh, was a buddy of my buddies. We started an online- Why do
1: white men love calling their friends buddies?
2: Well, was a buddy of mine. He's a buddy of his. Buddies. It's my college roommate and a buddy of his. And he's a buddy. What do you want to?
1: Always buddies.
2: So when we moved to the city, we actually started an online company, an e-commerce company. You? To start- this is
1: brand new information. Uh,
2: and this is in 1997. Okay. To sell HIV- Home testing kits.
1: Are you Elizabeth Holmes?
2: They were brand. We didn't invent the kits, <laughs> but the thesis, the working thesis that we had, not a bad one, was to order. And now remember, so this is this is the 90s. HIV is still raging out of control. The therapies were not there, and it was extremely you're, look, you're cutting something. I can no, tell. No, I'm you're not. You're editing I'm, something. I'm,
1: no, I'm genuinely into it. You're fraud- looking at me like,
2: I can't believe you just said that. No. You gave me the, I'm going to cut that face. No, it's,
1: I've, you, I've heard a, the gist of your stories mostly. Know, I've been around a while. And it's it's unusual to have just such a brand new concept introduced. Sorry. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of things I haven't heard. But in this room, most of your stories have been divulged in some way or another. True. So I'm just, I'm genuinely shocked. You're right, this is, this is out of nowhere. Shocked. <laughs> Let's continue.
2: Well, so the working thesis that we had was that anything that is embarrassing to purchase in person would be great. And these happen to be very expensive at the time and very high margin. So we looked at it. We said, this is a perfect product to launch with. Why
1: don't you go like the dildo route if you're talking embarrassing? Oh.
2: <laughs> so <laughs> that was an option because of some of the names, the domain. This is in the era that, you know, getting domain dildo names was like seller a big dot deal. Org. And we decided against it in order to put a more professional corporate face on it. But we did get into, okay, so can we sell prophylactics now? And then can that get into, we actually had an arrangement with a distributor for all pharmaceutical products light pharmaceutical over-the-counter product okay. so essentially like, that
1: sounds illegal <laughs>
2: anything that you could do at pharmacy.com drugstore.com like what you would buy at cvs now or what have you right we had access to be able so to you pull could have
1: through. gone the robitussin route and sell to drug dealers I,
2: oh yeah well we did do that too but that's a whole other story oh, yeah, i just want yeah, to keep yeah. that on. are so you walter white we we we're launched it stuff. we were in we were downtown new york we were taking meetings with people trying to build out this platform the platform fucking sucked it was clunky Was
1: someone a coder we
2: did not and that was the biggest problem is that we (laughs) were a couple of things not geniuses not none of us was a coder and we had to hire out for these skills these skills were very hard to come by and extremely Mm. expensive and the platforms were just clunky and we built a very heavy site that was very difficult to transact with So now think about this for a second. The conversations in 1997 that we were having in New York with developers downtown were about developing something like that guy is doing with books. Hmm? And that's what we knew. He He was already the front runner with this idea of selling stuff online. And our thought was, books, that will only go so far, but stuff that you buy at a drugstore... Stuff that if we can reasonably get that to you and you don't need it that minute, but we can get it to you within a couple of days so you don't have to stand in front of the checkout line or the pharmacist and ask them for that embarrassing thing, we're gonna fucking murder it. And we plowed through all of the money that we were making at the time and it flopped.
1: You were making money? We had jobs. Oh, okay. Yeah,
2: we all had jobs, but oh, this was I our- I you
1: meant money from the-
2: This is when you didn't sleep. You just you know sat up and you know drank and, and worked. And we drank a lot of coffee. And I mean, we just worked 24 hours.
1: What's the difference between what hours. you're doing now?
2: Not a lot, which is kind <laughs> of scary, except I'm not built for it anymore. Point being, Jeff Bezos has been so far ahead of everybody and so much a part of the conversation for so fucking long in this burgeoning enterprise that is the worldwide fucking web that what he has built, you can't look at it and say, well, somebody else could have done that. He re- he's special. What he built is special. His talent is extraordinary. They've built something that is now, in a lot of ways, ruining culture built on the backs of employees that have not been honored along the way. And it's a terrible, terrible company. But if you just look at it through that lens, you're missing a larger point about where the economy is going and where the government resides with relation to these type of companies. This is different than Standard Oil. As I was looking at a lot of the antitrust cases, and we'll talk a little bit about this in the next episode, but I was looking at a lot of the successful breakups of Ma Bell or Standard Oil, and Standard Oil gave us Exxon Mobil, Standard Oil gave us Amoco, Chevron, or a whole bunch of other companies that themselves became big concerns. But at one time, it was just one, right? In the way that Amazon is going to be the only place that you can fucking buy something online. I mean, that's where it's going, right? So it's different than that in that they're able to claim that they still only represent, let's say, 5% of all retail sales. We can't be a monopoly. 95% of retail shit isn't bought here. It's interesting. Plus, when you start to factor in all of their other businesses that they're wrapping in, there's another antitrust angle that revolves around data, Personal data, personal information, the use of it, who has access to it, what it's worth on the open market, and how fragile that data ecosystem is and how susceptible it is to people stealing it. Yeah. So it's really layered.
1: It's interesting. Thousands of spam emails a week telling me my Amazon account has been uh
2: the one you don't have.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm amazing. like, oh, is it? Uh <laughs> you should we should look into for next week what what Amazon's role in Web3 will be?
2: That's a great question. That's a great question. Like, how does that actually factor in? My guess is they're very far ahead of it. I'm sure. Because the next version of the web is is, is going to be productized in a very different way. It's going to be commoditized yeah. almost exclusively. So. For them not to be a central actor in that, and actually central to the design of it, is is a fantasy.
1: Yeah. For me, it's the big, the big three to watch are Amazon, Facebook, and Google when it comes to Web3 and what that means for living online. Mm-hmm. You know, all Amazon has to do is sell, like, fucking tokens or something to buy Amazon basic sweater for your avatar, and it's a whole different ballgame.
2: Bro, that's why I'm saying. Bro, crypto. (laughs) You got to go crypto, bro. I
1: don't want to talk about it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They just want to be the best customer-centric company in the world, and they're on their way to doing that in a very sick way that kind of fucks up every other stakeholder. What's so one thing that I was thinking about? What's so interesting is that one in 160 people works directly for Amazon. That number increases when you start thinking about that ecosystem outside of it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just the people that work for them; it's the people that have to contract with them. It's the people that supply them the cardboard. So, I mean, Amazon is a, a serious engine in this economy, and also those many millions of people are their customers as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're so big now that saying you're customer centric, but go fuck your employees. You're saying the same people, yeah. right? You can't have a population that is so fucking weak, unhealthy, and destroyed that they can't afford your consumer goods, which is the larger—the the whole picture and point of our exercise here, our socioeconomic exercise of unfucking the republic, is basically to prove that very point, that if you have a sick and unhealthy population— you cannot thrive economically as a nation, and that our economics are absolutely upside down. We have it completely reversed. And no company, in my mind, illustrates this better than Amazon.
1: Yeah. I was, I, I just had deja vu, but I was having a conversation with my friend on the way home from visiting my sister, and we were talking about. I think I think we were talking about Amazon, but I brought up how I had just watched The Ten Commandments with my mom for the first time. I'd never seen it.
2: Charlton Heston? Yeah. Wow.
1: I'd never seen it. And it's like one of her favorite movies, apparently. I didn't know. She just, I, wow. she, I don't know if she loves it. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Did you really? <laughs> I did. I mean, we had to watch it over two days because it's four hours long.
2: One of the, We covered it in our uh, yeah. film episodes. One of the very first blo- like, true blockbusters with a big budget.
1: I loved it. So we were watching that and there's, I was saying how when Moses was still like the prince of Egypt and his brother or whatever, brother, cousin, whatever their relationship is, was saying he's a traitor because he gave the slaves a day off and fed them. And he was like, living slaves work better than dead ones. And that was him being the villain. And I was like, why don't they see this? Right. <laughs> why don't they see that if they just gave their workers fucking chairs and let them go to the bathroom and, you know, like all this shit.
2: Yeah, they don't want them there. They they, they legitimately don't want them there. I know. They are I- a stopgap to full automation.
1: It doesn't. I mean, but... It's so hard to see something so clearly wrong that Mm with, it's not a change that could be made overnight because, you know, Prime in itself is kind of unsustainable for this model. But he sat down with like someone who could organizationally design it to figure out how to, you know, maybe hire more people, better more competitive wages, all this stuff like you would think. I mean, but he doesn't have to because he just has that much. But it's so frustrating. But my guess
2: is their conversations are more like this: We do a half a trillion dollars in revenue and employ 1.6 million people to get there. How do we get to a trillion in revenue and <laughs> employ a half a million people? Yeah. Seriously, I, th- I think that that's their calculus. Right, yeah,
1: but it's so frustrating to watch as as a bystander because. We have the answers. Uh, we don't have the mechanism to get there because that's not our expertise. But, like, the answer is clear. You know, you just need – and he could find the people to fill in the gaps. They just don't want to.
2: Well, pursuant to this episode, <laughs> the only media that we have to call out, by the way, in Podlove, mm-hmm. is Pitchfork Economics. So we mentioned Nick Hanauer early on. Yeah,
1: well, I'm on. this is a cliffhanger.
2: So Nick Hanauer, one of the very first investors into Amazon.com. And today, one of its biggest detractors and critics.
1: Love that for him.
2: Love that for him too. And he has some very biting quotes that will be featured in part two. Nice. As you know, we love Nick Hanauer, we love Goldie, we love Pitchfork Economics and the Civic Ventures crew. So it was kind of a happy surprise to see them so prominently featured throughout all the research and the literature. If you're into that, listen to Pitchfork Economics. For book love, as you heard, Alec McGillis, fulfillment, winning and losing in one click America. Best part about it is the human face that he puts on every single chapter. Every chapter begins with a real human story of the people that work in Amazon. See you next week for part two of Amazon. By the way, I hope everybody enjoyed our little family talk that we had just in celebration of Fuck Milton Friedman and because we had Manny in the studio here. We love doing it. We love being together. That was a lot of fun. Also, look out for the new feature that we have coming up in less than two weeks, called Phone-A-Friend. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Many Faces.
0: Well, if we've got a new friend, I'd like to know his name. Name? I never had one, not a real one anyway. Then we'll give you one. One that is fitting for your many talents.
2: And many faces? Hey, that's it. Man-e-faces. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Come on, Jeffrey, you can do it. Pave the way, put your back into it. Tell us why, show us how. Look at where you came from, look at you now. Zuckerberg and Gates and Buffett. Amateurs can fucking suck it. Fuck their wives, Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by beaten down warehouse workers and distributed by Full Piss Bottles. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. And remember, if you're in Vermont, just go to Bookstore Kim's shop. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop. And read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com. And remember, friends, it will always be free. See you next week, 99.